You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, we'll be chaired by Lorna Carson, uh, a colleague from the School of Linguistics and Speech and Communication Sciences, director of the Centre for Asian Studies and a member of our steering committee. Um, and uh, the, the brief presentations will be followed by a round of, of questions and then an open discussion. And then in the second half of this event, um, I will give a very brief overview of the theme, and then we open up a discussion where we want to hear from you, what are you working on, uh, what do you expect from the theme, what can you contribute, what can the theme do for your research. Um, so that's, that's the plan for this afternoon, and uh, without further ado, I hand over to Lorna. Thank you. Thank you, Jürgen. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm chairing this afternoon's discussion, and we will have four nine-minute precisely timed presentations. That's just a random number. Um, I'm going to introduce each speaker. At the end of the four presentations, I'm going to ask, well, have two rounds of questions at the front. I'd like to ask each speaker a specific question, focusing on these ideas of power and progress and parity in relation to identity. And then I'm going to ask them an, another slightly more controversial question, which I'll ask them to chip in and we'll try and get some cross, uh, cross-disciplinary discussion. And then uh, we'll open it up to the floor and, and, and at that point and what you want from this research theme. So I hope, I hope it will be entertaining. The sandwiches remain at the back. Please do come uh, and, and go as, as you feel. But my first speaker, I'm delighted to introduce, is Dr. Isabella Jackson, who's Assistant Professor of Chinese History in the School of Histories and Humanities. So over to Shanghai for the next nine minutes. Thank you, Lorna. Um, oh, do you know where the... Uh, So, um, yeah, I work um, on China, modern Chinese history, primarily Shanghai up to this point. Um, and Shanghai is an excellent place to consider identities and transformation. It was um, one of the largest cities in the world, the fifth largest city in the world by 1930, uh, with three and a half million people. But more than 75% of those people uh, were new arrivals. Um, they were not born in the city, they had uh, migrated to the city. Um, and that's true of Chinese population and the much, much smaller foreign population. So necessarily people's identities change when um, they uh, are settling in a new location. And it's something I'm very interested in how um, they balance the um, uh, Shanghai identity with uh, links to um, their place of origin. Um, so uh, this is uh, the famous image of uh, the Shanghai Bund, first of all. And it looks very foreign. You know, this could be London, it could be... Dublin, similar sort of architecture, um, ranging from the neoclassical through um, to the Art Deco. Um, uh, so when people first got off their big ships and, and arrived at the Bund, this is the image that they were confronted with. And the foreigners often felt that it was their city, and other places in China often saw it as a foreign city. Um, but this is, you know, just turn off the Bund onto Nanjing Road, and this is what you're confronted with. This is the most important busiest shopping street in China in the day. Um, and it's at the heart of the international settlement, the, the foreign-managed part of the city, but it is, um, you know, it, it looks uh, largely Chinese. It's, it's um, Chinese people selling goods to Chinese shoppers. Um, and so it is, one of the debates is, is Shanghai Chinese? Um, and I would say, yes, it is, but it's a particular kind of, um, of Chinese. So how does that manifest in people's 
identities. Um, well, um, when people move to Shanghai from other parts of China, they very quickly wanted to show that they had uh, planted themselves in a city, so they would start speaking the local dialect, Shanghaihua, um, which is an amalgam of the dialects spoken in the region and is unique to the city. Um, and if you couldn't yet speak this language, then you would be looked down on by those who could. And there's a real sense of Shanghai as uh, the most dynamic uh, city in China and therefore the best, uh, the most outward looking, the most modern, because it's where all of these foreign influences enter the country. Um, and Chinese people in the city totally bought um, that idea. And they, their sense of superiority extended to a real prejudice against other groups, in particular um, what were known as the Subei people, people from the northern part of Jiangsu province, just to the north of Shanghai, um, where Subei became a synonym for uh, almost being kind of down and out, someone who was um, uncouth, unkempt, dirty in their habits, um, uh, and so identity so often is formed against an other. And for, for what became known as Shanghainese, uh, Shanghairan, um, the other was these um, backward country bumpkins um, who were not civilised in the same way that people um, who adopted Shanghai as their home um, were. So there's that, but at the same time, people's native place remained extremely important to them. So um, there were native place associations where if you were from Ningbo or Canton or wherever it might be, um, you'd find people who spoke the dialect of your hometown, um, who worshipped the same gods, um, who uh, you could pay regular sort of um, subs to and then they would help you in times of need. Or if you died, they'd pay your widow an allowance um, and, and help uh, ship your burial, your, your um, body back home for burial um, because that was very important. People maintained the link with the place of their ancestors. So that's one way in which you have these, these um, dual identities um, in operation in Shanghai. They also had a complicated relationship with the colonialism of the city. Um, in the period I look at, there's a real growth in nationalism. So people start to identify with China as a whole in a new way. And uh, that's against the um, imperialist powers. So a real growth in anti-imperialism. Um, but at the same time, for the business community, you know, they often came to Shanghai for the business opportunities and for the safety, and they were aware that that was due to the foreign presence. So they aren't very pleased about uh, the inequality that they experience, but they don't necessarily want an end to the imperial system entirely. And so they have this kind of complex relationship with the foreign presence, which I could um, go to in more detail if you... Um, if you wanted, or you uh, could read my, my new book, which covers all of this. Um, uh, from the, the foreign perspective, this is the um, flag of the international settlement. And as you can see, they were trying to claim for themselves this real cosmopolitanism. Um, uh, you have the, the flags of what in the late 19th century were the various different um, uh, uh, powers that had signed treaties with China that were significant in the city of Shanghai. Um, the white space had been Germany, and then that's removed um, uh, with the First World War. Um, uh, just, just, yeah. so, um, so this is the way they, they saw themselves as this kind of um, uh, nice family of nations, um, a little bit like the League of Nations in miniature, but just like the League of Nations, it didn't always work out like that. So people's national identity was important, but they had a strong sense of local Shanghai identity, particularly people who settled um, and you start to have multiple generations of foreigners um, who were born 
um, and um, remain in Shanghai. Um, and then for all of the imperial powers, they also have a sense of um, uh, belonging to their empire, the British to the British Empire, um, and so on. So that's, that goes along with a national and a local Shanghai identity. Um, and they would um, uh, work together um, in various ways to make the council work. There were um, 45 different nationalities in Shanghai, of which 25 were involved in some way or another in the, the running of the settlement. Um, but, you know, this is not always um, an easy um, uh, relationship for them. Um, so there are various different groups, and some of the more dominant groups um, really um, uh, embrace their national identity in a, in a big way. So one of the largest um, groups among the, the British is the Scots. The Scots always threw themselves into empire in a big way and were represented disproportionately. And... Um, they had this um, very visual way of presenting their identity, right, with the kilt and, and so on. So they volunteered in very large numbers for um, what was called the Shanghai Volunteer Corps, um, a um, defence group um, of, of people who had other day jobs but would come out to defend the settlement if it was threatened. Um, and they would march um, in uh, military formation and really celebrate their Scottish identity as well as their British and Imperial and local Shanghai identities. Um, the, the Scottish Highlanders were seen by the British as a martial race, um, but so too were the Sikhs, a very different group. Um, uh, but they were brought um, to various places in the British Empire to work as um, police. And uh, Shanghai was, um, was one of those places. And again, it's a very visual sense of identity. Um, the Sikh uniform incorporated the turban and various other markers, um, visual markers of identity. And the Sikhs had their own uh, gurdwara to worship in and so on. So I've published on both of these groups as um, uh, you know, really interesting um, uh, ways in which uh, you could have these, these smaller identities within um, a much wider polity. Um, so just to finish up, um, this is not a story that ends with the ending of imperialism in, in China in the 1940s. Um, it informs the way um, people in Shanghai see themselves today as part of a city that has an um, a imperial past, which um, is regrettable, um, but uh, that has always been very outward-looking. Um, and uh, so they see themselves as this kind of most modern city in China, whereas other places in China see them as the most materialistic um, and uh, driven by money and, and so on. So there is this um, uh, legacy of this period which I'm also interested in. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's about perfect timing, and you were the guinea pig on the ringtones. There's an art, as Jurgen has demonstrated in the past, beautifully too. Um, we'll move swiftly, and we're moving geographically now. To over to a very different context, I guess, we're moving to um, Europe, um, and particularly Ireland, I think, Michael, your research goes right across that, um, or David, your assistant professor in sociology, and we're going to look at aspects of masculinity in this case. So we move from these rather martial men over to something else, red wingers.
Hi, uh, thanks very much, and uh, thanks to the Identities in Transformation um, uh, Research Group for inviting me to speak. Uh, so, my brief talk is called The Unsung Heroes of Ireland, Masculinity, Gender, and Breadwinning Amongst Ireland's uh, Euro Commuters. Um, masculinity is something that has been, I suppose, a subject of academic debate for a good 40 years at this stage. Uh, prior to the 1980s, men were often seen um, in academic debates and broader discussions, I suppose, as non-gendered humans, non-gendered subjects. When you talked about gender, you talked about women and girls, not necessarily the boys or the men. Um, however, as, as a subject of academic debate for the last 40 years, it's also become something, I suppose, uh, maybe seared onto certain people's um, retinas or the public consciousness in the last uh, two, three years, uh, perhaps uh, best represented in the figure of the 45th president of the US, Donald Trump. Uh, discussions about crass, vulgar, chauvinistic men, uh, toxic masculinity, and so on. So it's, it, it's a discussion, uh, a broad debate about masculinity itself is something that is uh, part of public consciousness, public uh, debate. Um, this paper isn't necessarily about crass or chauvinistic uh, masculinity, it's about ordinary, everyday masculinity and how that might sort of shed a light on uh, what it means to be a man. So I look at uh, middle class professional uh, Irishmen um, engaged in um, commuter mobility, working overseas, uh, yet sort of domiciled, resident in the Republic of Ireland. Um, these men I term uh, Euro commuters, so working in one country, a uh, European country, living in the other, and commuting back and forth between uh, the two frequently. And this type of non-permanent migration, um, I suppose it's seen as on the rise uh, in the last number uh, of decades. Uh, circular forms of migration, uh, non-permanent, which contrasts with 18th, 19th, early 20th century forms of migration, which are generally seen as a permanent, uh, a one-way ticket, not necessarily so uh, nowadays. Um, just some quick background. Um, in recent years, there's been seen to be an increase in this type of migration from the Republic of Ireland. Um, a survey in a national, national survey on emigration from Ireland 2013, conducted by UCC, uh, found that there was a significant increase in uh, non-permanent commuter types uh, of uh, migration. Um, just to point out, my approach is a, sort of a qualitative uh, approach, ethnography uh, based largely on uh, in-depth interviews. Um, so I begin to try to ask, uh, not necessarily how many people is doing this, uh, but what types of people are doing this, and why they're doing it, and what they might gain uh, by so doing. Um, quick look at my sample. My sample, while not necessarily intending to be overwhelmingly or exclusively male, turned out to be exclusively male. So taking a sort of a, a ground-up inductive approach, uh, I discovered that those who, at least that I was, was able to locate, uh, were predominantly male. Um, as well as being predominantly male, they were predominantly highly educated. Um, in my sample, everyone had a bachelor's degree, a good number had uh, a master's degree. And they also tended to be a little bit older, averaging in around age uh, just below 40. Um, many had experienced unemployment uh, prior uh, to becoming a Euro commuter and obviously one of the main uh, drivers behind this type of mobility. Um, an average unemployment period of approximately uh, 10 months. Um, most were uh, married or cohabiting with partners in the Republic of Ireland. Most had children uh, of school-going age and uh, their spouses or partners back in Ireland. Um, it was sort of a mix between those who worked full-time, those who worked part-time, and those who uh, were full-time um, in the home. 
Um, in terms of the sectors these men worked in, they were um, exclusively professional men, uh, no men that are located in, um, I suppose, uh, blue-collar uh, occupations. The sectors they occupied were uh, media, uh, politics, uh, academia, law, finance, uh, technology. Um, so the main question I asked, I suppose, is why were you doing this and uh, what did you gain by so doing? Um, however, a quick look at the literature on masculinity. Um, I think it's fair to say the vast majority of the literature on masculinity actually focuses on uh, working class men. And the main reason for this is uh, a major shift in Western economies from a sort of heavy industry, uh, industrial manufacturing base to a post-industrial uh, service-based uh, economy. Um, with this, uh, if, if working class masculinity is largely defined around their capacity to be breadwinners, uh, take away this capacity, uh, and then you somehow uh, threaten uh, this sense uh, of manhood, resulting in some cases in marginalised masculinities, the, the, the inability uh, to earn a living. Um, it's also been written about how this can produce uh, redundant masculinities, uh, a loss of uh, self-identity uh, as a result of uh, permanent unemployment or bouts of unemployment as a result of the multiple recessions Western post-industrial economies have experienced uh, since the 70s. Um, some men just protest against this, rebel against this, they enter into the world of um, informal economy, uh, turn towards drugs, alcohol, uh, crime, and so on. Um, however, others do uh, adapt, namely by finding uh, niches uh, in traditional male employment areas, be it construction and so on, or by um, reskilling and finding work in the so-called increasingly feminized uh, workplace. Um, pro but professional middle-class masculinity, I suppose, is another uh, variant of masculinity. And uh, following R.W. Connell's distinction between uh, subordinated uh, or marginalised masculinities and dominant or hegemonic masculinities, it's fair to say that professional uh, white-collar masculinity is one version uh, of a dominant hegemonic uh, masculinity. And the different sort of ways masculinity is played out in different occupational cultures uh, has been uh, written about at length in everything from engineering, architecture, uh, academia, various bureaucracies, um, finance, and so on. Um, to, I suppose, give, give a broad overview of what are the dominant masculine traits evident in these workplaces, you could say that what is required uh, of employees, particularly of male employees, Emotional faculty in the workplace, technical mastery of a specialist skill, um, uninterrupted career history, and of course devotion uh, to your organisation. Um, but if the crisis of masculinity is said to be a working class, working class male affair, um, it can also be seen to play out and be evident uh, for professional middle class men. And this has been something that's been written about as well. It's a result of um, corporate layoffs, uh, restructuring of organisations. Uh, people are said to be bidding farewell to the organisation man, the salary man of the 1950s, and there's this dying phallus, I think that might be an unpublished Philip Roth novel, uh, somewhere <laughs> in his door. Um, corporate layoffs, redundancies, downsizing, de-skilling and so on, all of this can be said to be uh, variously uh, emasculating. And middle class uh, masculine cells, as much as working class masculine cells, are especially vulnerable uh, to setbacks around breadwinning, earning, and uh, demotion uh, in the workplace. 
And what might you do to somehow combat this? You might engage in acts of compensatory masculinity so that you somehow uh, try to make up for your failings in this area by engaging in all sorts of behaviors from maybe uh, risky behaviors to uh, increased devotion uh, to your uh, career. And these various layoffs, redundancies, demotions, and so on uh, have been shown uh, in the literature to be a scarring, not just scarring in terms of your future employment prospects, uh, but also scarring, sort of disfiguring to one's uh, sense of self, one's self, uh, sense of uh, self-identity. I'm um, just going to present you quickly with some quick quotes from the study that I did. So I interviewed uh, 37 uh, male Euro commuters, and this is what they had to say on their motives, main reasons for why they did this. Well, obviously what came to the fore as a result of the economic crisis is, of course, uh, the material dimensions. So it was about uh, maintaining uh, their, their lifestyle, uh, their consumption practices that they've been uh, familiar with uh, in the Republic of Ireland. So uh, they effectively commute overseas to earn a similar or even greater uh, financial remuneration package than, uh, that they had um, in Ireland prior uh, to the crisis. I have to push this very quickly. Um, but uh, it wasn't just necessarily about maintaining a financial position uh, or a class position, it was a class privilege, it was also about maintaining uh, a certain gender privilege. And what emerged from a number, uh, the vast majority of the interviews in fact, is that the experience of unemployment in the Republic of Ireland ser seriously eroded their sense of self, their sense of confidence in themselves. Uh, by commuting overseas, restoring uh, their employment status, restoring their breadwinner status within their families, they were also uh, able to restore a sense of themselves. So what emerged, which you might sum up briefly, is a neo-traditionalist model of masculinity, where to be a man, to be a good man, is to be a provider, uh, a financial uh, provider to your family. So a so-called man session turns into a man covery, uh, so to speak, uh, like commuting <laughs> overseas. Um, an important distinction here also between uh, these men who understand themselves as performing masculinity well by doing this, and other men who didn't do this. So they drew a distinction between men who were mobile and men who were not mobile. So they complained about men in similar social positions as themselves who didn't commute, who stayed in Ireland, who sat on their arses, who stagnated, and so on. Um, drawing a distinction between successful men and failed men, and there's a sort of weird Cartesian logic going on. That I commute, therefore I'm a man. I do not commute, therefore I am not a man. Um, it's also a homosocial space. They saw it as something that only men did. So as uh, Peter here says, the lads on this flight were doing this uh, for our families. Of course, uh, Eurocommuting can be uh, uh, something that women do as well. He fails to countenance this. And as he says himself, if you ask me, we're the unsung heroes of Ireland by uh, not only uh, saving their families' financial capacities, but also effectively keeping a bankrupt nation financially afloat. So there's some uh, equation between self and nation there too. Um, and very quickly to sum up, uh, very little evidence of uh, re-emergence, uh, re-engineering of gendered identities, very little in the way of undoing gender, unbending gender. Instead, there's a sort of reassertion of hegemonic ideals uh, of masculinity. Uh, of what it means to be a man. In terms of identities and transformation, uh, I think when we're thinking about identities, talking about identities, um, as much as we can witness moments of change and transformation, it's equally important to follow the writings of Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, and numerous others uh, to see that identity is also something that's fixed, static, and uh, very much resistant uh, to change.
somewhat uncomfortable shifts in the room there. <laughs> um, we, we zoom out here uh, now. We are really delighted to welcome Michael Cronin, who is the 7756 Professor and Chair of French. And, and this is Identities Now in Environmental Humanities. Thank you. Over to you, Michael. That's great. Thanks, Lorna. And uh, absolutely delighted to be here. Um, as I suppose a new member of the college staff, um, but also to be a member of this uh, particular group. Uh, recently I was in Berlin and uh, I was in a second-hand bookshop and I saw a book called Yoga for Katzen. Um, so we, we shows kind of cats in all kinds of yoga positions. Uh, and in the middle of it was uh, Palza. Um, so all the cats are kind of just lying around in couches and not doing very much. Uh, so I think if you can see this as a kind of PowerPoint pause, a kind of a break. Um, so I won't be showing you uh, any PowerPoints, uh, but I will be saying something about Katzen. Uh, and it's um, what my particular uh, interest in this particular uh, theme of identities and transformation is basically to do with what I think are the, the implications for what we do uh, in terms of this transition to uh, a new geological age, the, the, the notion of the, the Anthropocene. So somewhat briefly, this kind of term was put forward by uh, Sturm and Kutzen uh, in 2002 in a Nature article, where they um, argue that the principal source uh, of change to climate is anthropogenic um, carbon dioxide uh, emissions, or emissions uh, from uh, human uh, activities. Uh, and what that means, if you like, is that the status of what, you know, what the humans are uh, shifts from being that of a biological agent to that of a geological uh, agent. And this point can be stated by Dipesh Chakrabarti, this notion of kind of deep history. In other words, that whereas humans have always in interacted with their, their environment um, over the millennia, um, they have, um, if you like, been subject uh, to uh, the actions influences of this, this environment. Uh, they've had a certain kind of, of impact. What has, what has happened is that the, uh, this impact has increased prodigiously uh, in terms of the, the influence it's having, happen, having so that you're getting something that's comparable to the shift of tectonic plates, uh, the explosion of earthquakes, and so on. So that, uh, this shift from, from biological to geological agent means that you have to kind of rethink uh, what kinds of histories uh, humans are, are partaking in. Whereas previously there was a notion of the very long time of geological history, the very abbreviated time of human history. Now we find that humans are getting embedded in a particular kind of geological uh, history. And what are the implications of how we think about something like the human and the humanities uh, in that respect. The other, well, I'm going to dwell a bit more on for the time I have here, is um, humans who have, um, if you like, cultivated um, or been subject to a notion of uh, human exceptionalism, one of the things that the Anthropocene is sort of calling into question is to what extent that sense of supremacy, that sense of mastery, uh, that sense of being in control of the, the environment is in any way tenable. What's happening, if you like, in Timothy Morton's and hyper-objects is that uh, the objects are biting back. Right, that, the, that this environment, this surrounding, this, this world uh, that one saw as a part of uh, one sort of divine inheritance, so the kind of the Adamic mastery of the world that surrounded one, uh, <coughs> or as a kind of an object of instrumental reason, scientific revolution, Cartesian dualism, and so on. And that now what's happening <coughs> is that this world um, that in, in, in which we, we, we find ourselves uh, is, is now... Uh, taking on a kind of an agency of its own, which is calling into question notions of, of human exceptionalism. And this kind of notion of human exceptionalism, kind of 
Christian lineage, uh, scientific lineage, which we also find in kind of Promethean Marxism, uh, somebody like Alain Badiou, this, this kind of notion that what, what characterizes human liberation is the way in which we liberate ourselves from natural constraints, that what constitutes the kind of the, the, uh, the restraint uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the human is, is these uh, things, these non-human things that, that, that hold us back. Uh, if we think in kind of techno-cyber-utopianism, something like Ray Kurzweil and his notion of singularity, that basically what you have is a moment where it's a fusion uh, of the human and, and, and the machine that you, you, you sort of transcend the, the kind of the, the natural mortal self to, to you know, move into something that is um, a, a kind of uh, uh, an exaggerated, sublimated uh, form of the, uh, the human. Uh, one of the things that I think the, the, the Anthropocene, this, this kind of new uh, condition in which we find ourselves, is, is, is calling into question, uh, is precisely the nature, the feasibility, the, the how tenable uh, that notion of exceptionalism uh, is. So <clears throat> Rosie Bredotti, um, the <clears throat> Dutch uh, cultural theorist, um, uh, was argued recently in her book The Post-Human, um, that that notion of exceptionalism, which has a, a notion of a human subject, the human subject then sort of apprehends the world in, in, in various ways, that with the shift in the kind of uh, context in which we, we find ourselves, in the, the Anthropocene as opposed to the Holocene, then you have to think about the, the, the subject, not in terms of the kind of centralised, unique, uh, mastering subject, but the transversal subject. And what she means by the transversal subject or transversality is the relationship that we have to all of the other um, entities um, that constitute uh, the world that, that we inhabit. So some of those entities are the other species, which of course we are destroying on an unprecedented scale. Elizabeth Colbert's um, the sixth mass extinction of other species on, on the planet. Um, and the, so that is one uh, relationship. And the other relationship is how we relate to the non-organic uh, elements that constitute uh, our, our, our universe. So this kind of notion then of uh, transversality that Vedotti is, 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 is putting forward is suggesting that we have to rethink the kind of relationships uh, that we have uh, with all these other constituent elements of our universe because if we don't, the game is up uh, for uh, humanity. So from my point of view, if you like, from my sort of background in, in foreign languages, uh, intercultural studies and translation, um, what interests me is um, what will be, or what are the kind of mechanisms of this transversality? In other words, if we were to conceive of some notion of a kind of post-human transversality, what are the kinds of translation mechanisms that are, are, that are going to come into place? In other words, if we're talking about uh, a relationship or, or interaction uh, with other species, uh, what is going to be the grounds of that kind of communication? How are we going to fall, uh, avoid, if you like, the pitfalls of anthropocentrism. What is, exists there in animal studies and ethology, in, in studies of animal behavior and communication, uh, that will allow us to develop potential uh, translation uh, paradigms for interspecies communication? If we develop these forms of interspecies communication then, does that mean that we will reconceptualize, reconceive the animal condition? Because if you think about it, one of the reasons, or one of the ways in which um, various kind of liberation, decolonizing movements work is, or worked, was that whereas um, particular peoples were seen as the uh, as objects being uh, manipulated uh, for the profit of the, the colonizer, they were kind of mute uh, objects that could be manipulated. Uh, once uh, linguists and translators began to learn the languages and translate 
uh, what these uh, people were experiencing as suffering and saying, they suddenly became aware of the shift, if you like, from a positivistic object to a hermeneutic subject. Uh, and this then, uh, if you like, broadened the circle of ethical inclusivity for people like our, our, ourselves, and therefore were entitled to the same uh, sets of, of rights. Is there a, a sense in which, if we develop this kind of transversal, uh, translational dynamic in terms of interspecies communication, um, that the, the conditions in which uh, uh, animals uh, live uh, will be transformed uh, by, by this? Secondly, in terms of the, 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 the inorganic, uh, and this is something that's very much characteristic of many, uh, for example, uh, cosmologies, uh, Amerindian cosmologies, Aboriginal cosmologies, and so on, is that sense of the kind of the absolute difference, absolute kind of ontological difference in rivers, forests, uh, people, and so on. Th th this doesn't exist. There's a, there's a kind of fluidity uh, in terms of how uh, matter uh, or, or form uh, manifests them, them, themselves. So is there a sense then, if we, if we talk about what, what I call the tradosphere, and, and the tradosphere is the sum of all the signifying uh, systems in, in, in our universe which are capable of admitting uh, receiving and interpreting information, if we think of the universe in terms of, of a, tr a tradosphere, what kinds of translational mechanisms and so on will we de develop in order to, to, if you like, effectuate a move towards uh, what I would see as a kind of post-human uh, in in engagement uh, with the, uh, the universe which surrounds us, a universe which will survive uh, the disappearance of our species, but a universe that if we ignore uh, will certainly lead to uh, the device of the species. So now I'm going to offer you another pause. I'm going to shut up. Okay, thank you. <laughs>
so it's about the uh, relationship between the self and the other in its largest and strictest sense. Why I'm interested in the Bildungsroman is because it speaks to the seemingly contradictory but central uh, to two notions, central to modernity, the individual and the society. The Bildungsroman, the classic Bildungsroman, conceives both the individual and society as dynamic principles. Um, therefore, the process of the alteration that the Bildungsroman portrays based on the individual's active participation in the formation of society is, at the same time, the picture of an idealized uh, democracy. The protagonist leaves his or her limited private sphere, private realm, and makes an appearance in the public sphere, which we should understand in the Habermasian uh, terms, in which uh, equals, equal individuals appear on the public sphere and inter interact with each other. Therefore, it is the guarantee of the continuity of the society and uh, an educated citizen's citizenry emerges as the guarantee of uh, prolonged democracy. Uh, so it's, it's not about, um, uh, it shouldn't be seen as a totalizing movement towards uh, an idealized telos at the end. It's, uh, it's, it shouldn't be seen as drilling and hammering an ideology. It should be rather regarded as a very dynamic uh, process in which both elements are shaped and changed. It, is, uh, it also um, contains a moral component because it is also... Uh, indicative of the tension between what is and what ought to be, uh, what we do with our mistakes, what we do uh, with our experience in the world. When we come to Turkey and, uh, uh, and the Bildungsroman, uh, we have to talk about Turkey's project of modernization, which has always suffered from a keen sense of belatedness, a persistent tendency towards authoritarianism, and a constant threat of real or imagined religious fundamentalism. In the 40s and the 50s, the Bildungsroman in Turkey was an indispensable part of the novel, Turkish novel, mostly portraying poor kids possessed by fantasies of social mobility and or integration into the narrative of Turkey's project of modernization. Now that there is another major transition in the country with the rise of the Islamist government to power, we observe a return to the narratives of children and adolescents. The new novels, these new novels, emerge as disfigured versions of the classical Bildungsroman. They contain the Bildungsroman themes, but uh, they portray characters stuck in an eternal childhood as they fail to take the journey into the world. They shun experience, although they still claim uh, the knowledge that will be brought by the self-realization at the end of the process. They are very skeptical about the experience and mostly withdraw from the world. These novels portray adolescents whose lives are shattered by the banality of the everyday life. Parents get divorced, fathers lose their jobs, mothers live at the verge of nervous breakdowns, neighbor girls are sent away for arranged marriages, and teenage brothers die in wars they do not believe in. This is what the adult world is made up of experience that cannot be translated to anything meaningful. Uh, these new novels are saturated usually with a bitter humor, uh, are very critical of Turkey's project of modernization, and display deep trust in the cult of action and success that dominates the adult world. One of the important examples 
uh, is Alper Donegus's uh, Sons and Wounded Souls, which portrays a five-year-old character um, burdened with, with the consciousness of a 30-year-old man. Uh, and the novel famously starts with the sentence, five is a person's ripest age, then the decay sets in. <laughs> so um, uh, uh, there are many others which I will not be able to mention because of the time limit. I see a similar tendency in, also in the contemporary Irish uh, novel. The example that I'm going to refer to is probably uh, known to all of you. It's Skippy Dies by Paul Murray. Um, in Skippy Dies, um, the main character, um, Skippy, well, he dies. <laughs> he dies at the beginning of the novel in a donut eating competition. Um, and the whole novel is the story of what has happened uh, before him. Uh, somewhere in the novel, talking about adulthood, uh, the main character uh, meditates. He says, gradually the awful truth dawns on you that Santa Claus was just the tip of the iceberg, that your future will not be the roller coaster ride you've imagined that the world occupied by your parents, the world of washing dishes, going to the dentist, weekend trips to the DIY store to buy floor tiles. It is actually largely what people mean when they speak of life. So, um, why I'm working on this theme, um, intellectually uh, and academically, the Bildungsroman speaks to all my interests in philosophy and literature, as it is an attempt to overcome the gap between the self and the other, the subject and the object, uh, between idea and nature, between individual and society. I'm also interested in the similarities uh, between the Irish and Turkish cases, which we can regard both we can regard as peripheral modernities. If we have more time, uh, I'd like to talk about that later. And I am especially interested in the difficulty of constructing a cultural identity in these two societies haunted by ghosts from the past. Or as my um, favorite Irish singer who has passed recently, Dolores O'Riordan would call them zombies. Um, a theme that ties me with the Identities and Transformation Group uh, here at the Hub. Uh, from the theoretical point of view, I am focusing on the concept of experience, which uh, is the dynamo of the Bildungsroman. Uh, and I'd like to finish with an image from um, uh, Agamben's Infancy in History, uh, where he refers to a short story by uh, Ludwig Tieck, the German romantic author Ludwig Tieck, and uh, the story is called uh, Das Lebensüberfluss, The Excess of Life. Jürgen kindly translated it for me. Uh, that depicts two penniless lovers who gradually renounce all possessions to the point where they live dozed up in their room. And uh, finally, when they can no longer find wood for fuel, they burn the wooden leather connecting their room with the rest of the house. And uh, they are left with co incomplete isolation from the outside world. Agamben says, this letter uh, is experience, sacrificed to the flames of pure knowledge, to the flames of abs abstract knowledge. Uh, one of my ulterior aims in this, in this research, one of my secret, my, my, my secret agenda, if I may call it so, in this project is to inquire whether it is possible to reconstruct that letter of experience 
uh, that connects the youth back to the society. Thank you so much for listening.